0: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the August 19th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine.
1: The world's longest-running LGBTQI radio show, now serving the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex communities, and proudly promoting our allies.
0: I'm Abby Dees
1: And I'm Wenzel Jones. Tonight, we explore what's on the mind of queer youth via our friends at Outcasting Overtime in Austin, Texas.
0: And in a special talk to Vosh, Mr. Bodie talks with the director of the new documentary, This One's for the Ladies, about a special community Of black strippers and their fans.
1: But first, the honesty. And this week, we leap into Abbeyland, where everything gets legal fast.
0: I know, but I'm going to try to keep it legal, but not incomprehensible.
1: Thank you, because I was baffled. I've got the overview of this story.
0: The thing is, is this stuff comes down so fast and furious. I kind of think that's the intent, just to kind of overwhelm people. It's just legal stuff happening. I don't know what's going on. Okay, let's see if we can try to make the story make sense. As we have talked about, the Supreme Court this year is hearing three cases that will likely determine whether Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits employment discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And the key question in all of these cases is going to be whether discrimination based on sex, which is what the text of Title VII means, includes gender identity and sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about gender identity today. But a little background to this is that the Obama administration issued guidance for years saying, yes, we interpret this to include sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. So in other words, employers that come under the purview of the EEOC cannot discriminate based on these things.
1: And we need to point out, because a lot of people still believe that there is some general protection mm-hmm. in federal law somewhere and that, that is, is not, not true. true not at all true
0: the little bit that we have had has often come from mm-hmm. obama yeah and clinton actually to a lesser degree Yeah, and of course we've talked Over the years now about how Trump has been steadily eroding those the problem with executive orders Mm -hmm. is that they don't really have to go through much of a process but they do have to be constitutionally sound and a lot of these things are probably going to make their way to court in other ways at other times and Mm -hmm. we can only hope the courts are still around to actually interpret the Constitution in a sensical way but for this issue Many lower courts have, even before Obama, said that yes, Title VII does prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, and. A lot of them used this case. This was a really pivotal case in sex discrimination jurisprudence, Price Waterhouse, a 1990 case. And one of the key things and why it's so important for our community is it said that discriminating against somebody because they don't conform to a gender stereotype can be construed Mm -hmm. as gender discrimination. So that has been used actually to open the door to a jurisprudence that...
1: So it was Pricewaterhouse about some woman wearing slacks to the office? Basically, or? yes. Oh, was it really? Yeah. I mean, basically. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It's about what
0: makes a man or a woman. Those things then become suspect. A funeral home in Michigan refused to allow a trans woman, Amy Stevens, to present as a woman, which mm. is her gender identity. Right. And the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, they brought suit on her behalf. They mm-hmm. lost in the lower court, and they won in the Sixth Circuit Court. And this is not the only circuit court that is held that, yes, right. she was yeah. discriminated against in violation of Title VII. And so the funeral home is arguing that they are legally entitled to differentiate between men and women in their dress code. That's a very reductionist way of thinking, but they're actually continuing with this argument that really sort of ignores now a generation of jurisprudence that Mm. parses this more finely, I just want to say the funeral home is represented by our old friends, the Alliance Defending Freedom. And they always seem to pop up when we have these cases. Yeah. So the Department of Justice under the Trump administration just filed a brief with the court arguing that the EEOC, is trying to redefine sex discrimination to shoehorn in something they call transgender status, that that is Mm -hmm. what this case is about. In that brief, which was just submitted on Friday, they say, you know, in 1964, the ordinary public meaning of sex was biological sex. And so their main argument is that whatever you thought in 1964, right. that's what follows. They're totally ignoring the history of this thing right? because it's already been expanded to recognize sexual harassment yeah, and like same-sex sexual harassment. Yeah. And even Scalia supported, right. not supporting same-sex no, sexual no, 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 harassment, no. but the idea that I that is discrimination. <laughs> Thank you. And totally reinterprets the Waterhouse case. And then, I mean, I'm sorry, I love this. I, I hate it. I hate it. I love it. I love it in its absurdity. The kind of fear mongering in this is just more of what we've seen it will fear mongering fear mongering <laughs> I'm surprised surprised that it would open floodgates and women won't be protected anymore there's so much stuff about protecting womanhood why does there it I say white womanhood
1: that. well yeah that's, the I, assumption. Mean, that's I
0: mean that's they'll say no no we didn't mean that you're putting words in our mouths and I'm like yeah it's exactly. not a scratch
1: what sounds like. you
0: know if this is allowed to happen then domestic violence shelters will have to let men sleep in the same room with women and that will put strains on the parent child relationship i think that has to do with like conversion therapy i almost in bathrooms of course
1: these are the same arguments so you would hear when they would try out uh, marriage equality, yeah, back before it was legal, yes, and and it was going to be the end of civilization. It's the slippery slope men argument. Men and women, yes, and we'll all be marrying our dogs.
0: But what's funny is that there's dog whistle stuff in it because it's oh, yeah. actually not that explicit. That's it's just like a click away from explicit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what they're doing. You know, slippery slope arguments work great in PR campaigns. Mm-hmm. They actually don't work that well in court. But then it depends on what kind of wingnut judge you get in front of. Right, Um, and
1: there are so many out there because mm, while everything else has been going on, they've just been packing courts all over the country for the past two and a half years. All
0: those vacancies left because they didn't confirm any of Obama's justices and judges. They defend their position by saying that courts must interpret Title VII consistent with its public meaning in 64, like we just said. You know, there's an interesting history to the 1964 Civil Rights Act that I think Mm. a lot of people forget. The whole thing came out of race discrimination, mm-hmm. and it was designed from the beginning to eliminate racial discrimination and then discrimination based on religious views. Mm-hmm. At the very last minute, a Southern opponent of the Civil Rights Act, before it was passed, said, no, we should add a provision that says that it prohibits discrimination based on sex. The idea is that no one would want to pass that, and that it was a way to kill the bill.
1: Oh, he thought that was going to be a poison pill? Yeah. Yeah. Wow!
0: Yes, and it, I was just yeah.
1: That sounds so progressive for a Southern politician in the no, early no, and
0: <laughs> even there were they were like Democratic women who were right. opposed to it because they thought it would kill the bill. But by the end, there ended up being a sort of surprise group of people on both sides right who voted for it right even with that provision. We don't have like a clean legislative history or that, I mean that's even why probably they're not yeah. looking at the legislative intent. They're talking about common sense meaning in 1964. Right. I just got to say if the Supreme Court Follows and agrees with this line of reasoning, mm-hmm. it will actually undo about twenty years of much more progressive understanding of Title Seven. It won't just preserve a status quo; it'll actually send us back.
1: Do you think that it could actually not go well for us? <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I don't know what to think can anymore. Happen. I know, I know, I know. And I know. with
0: this court, we haven't seen how they have acted with our community really well and plus and they like to punt it's also a yeah. possibility that they may punt like they yeah. did on the masterpiece cake Shop case right where they kind of just said yeah no we'll just ruin some little technicality here and we won't actually get to this question i just want to highlight in here though that the eeoc who are the ones that defended this trans woman and won in the sixth circuit court of appeals mm. is a federal Agency, and they're standing by this position, even though up until last week, the Trump administration, the Department of Justice, was putting Mm -hmm. a lot of pressure on them to flip. Mm -hmm. And even the Republicans and the EEOC leadership said, No. You know what? Good for you, EEOC. I'm sure it's not fun right now to be you.
1: Yeah, I read they're unlikely to reverse, but then the explanation got so, it's all people and names they don't know. And there's a lot of vacancies. And there's a brand new person on the staff. Yeah, I mean, they're
0: dealing with all those things about staffing, and they're supposed to have five people on the commission, and two of them are just empty chairs right now. But two out of three of the remaining ones are Republican, Mm -hmm. and they're— standing firm.
1: Good. So things are a mess. Go on.
0: Meanwhile, because, you know, the Trump administration just can't attack civil rights enough.
1: No, they cannot.
0: On Thursday, this coming Thursday, a proposal will go into effect via the U.S. Department of Labor reversing a 2014 executive order under Obama that banned federal contractors. These are the people you pay with your tax dollars.
1: And pay a lot.
0: Yes. yes, from discriminating based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And so the new rule gives a religious freedom exemption, there we go again, to the EEOC clause of Title VII. So they're trying to hit Title VII actually another way right. while this other thing is going through the court. They just issued a 46-page long draft of the rule. I have not read the whole thing between that brief and this rule. Right. That's like 150 pages of reading this weekend that I have not had time to do.
1: Well, and it's all supposed to be guided by faith which is such a weaselly term because what does that even mean whose faith what faith what kind of faith in particular it's very vague yeah
0: they say a contractor must be organized for a religious purpose meaning that it was conceived with a self-identified religious purpose however this need not be the contractor's only purpose so basically anything
1: i mean what kind of government contracting business is set up with a self-identified religious purpose other than a church and they're not contracting This is contracting no this is not churches. a legal standard.
0: This is this is gobbledygook. This is whatever they want mean. it to mean. This means a we are a Christian-based organization because our mm-hmm. founders were I mean this is my read. The founders were Christian and we do everything by Christian principles but we are a for-profit not religious, you know, organization.
1: But I mean if somebody like like Northrop Grumman Mm-hmm. they couldn't possibly retroactively go, oh, no, no, we have a self-identified religious I purpose. I think anything because... possible.
0: I mean, that would probably be a challenge. Yeah. But so many contractors are involved. Right, and, get and these... there's thousands
1: and thousands of very yeah. small businesses and out And it really there. is just
0: like, oh, you know, we've always had right. a picture of a cross in our logo or yeah. something. I mean, I, I really think this is gobbledygook that can be interpreted any right. way they want it. Well, I mean,
1: after Hobby Lobby.
0: Anything is possible. A
1: corporation is not only a person, but it can hold a religious belief Mm -hmm. and use it to discriminate against people. There you
0: go. The Department of Labor says it's enhancing civil rights protections, not limiting, Mm -hmm. and only for religious employers. ACLU says this is taxpayer-funded discrimination in the name of religion, Mm -hmm. because I will remind you that freedom of religion in this country is balanced with freedom from religion. ACLU also says that one in four workers in the US works for a company or organization getting a federal contract. So this goes into effect on Thursday.
1: And the administration, in its mealy-mouthed way of Mm. putting themselves in a good light, says this is all the need to enforce the robust protections for religious freedom found in federal law. And I'm wondering, where is this world in which religious people are so violently discriminated against and we're talking about basically white Christians because yes, we are. that's that's who these laws are being written for.
0: Yes, and probably arguably any other conservative Western mm-hmm. religion. Yeah. I mean, someone who's smart will and savvy will actually try to use this and flip it. Mm-hmm. So we're just waiting for that. The White House says that the president's promise and commitment to the LGBTQ community, however, hasn't mm-hmm. changed. So oh my god. Gosh, double speak <laughs> Double speak is alive and well, folks. Ha- but there is something you can do. We mm. put on IMRU's Facebook right. page a link to the Federal Register text of the new rule, and that is open for public comment until September 16th. I encourage people to go and read the comments and put your own comment on. I will not get into a thing right now about how this administration is completely abused to the public right. comment process. Just do it. We don't have enough time for me to complain about that.
1: And may we also suggest you go to ACLU.org and make a contribution mm. because they're fighting the good fight
0: just a suggestion because i don't think we're allowed to oh we're not chill but yeah just a thing you might want to do it's 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 an option (laughs) it's something you can do this might all be a big good faith misunderstanding however because Mm -hmm. as the log cabin republicans have recently told us
1: oh what have they done this time
0: this administration really is the savior of the lgbtq community and we have got it all wrong wenzel
1: just gay republicans that yes. concept alone. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And There's, I think gay is the operative word here. I don't think it's trans. I don't think it's queer. I don't think it's pan. I don't think it's no. anything except uh,
1: But this all started out, it was it was an op-ed in the Washington Post, right? Yes. So if you have a subscription, you can go Check online and read that.
0: I think you can read it without the subscription. Log Cabin Republican Chairman Robert Cabell. Cabel? I'm not sure. <laughs> and, yeah, I know
1: Cabell was the
2: first one that came yes. to my head.
0: Vice Chairwoman Jill Homan argued in a Washington Post op-ed on Friday that Trump has helped remove LGBTQ rights as a wedge issue in the GOP. As sort of a description of this Mm -hmm. transition, they say, the apparent, you know, happiness orgasm of the 2016 GOP convention, in which Pete Thiel was a keynote speaker— They said this is the party that Trump helped make possible by moving past the culture wars that dominated the 1990s and early 2000s, in particular by removing gay rights as a wedge issue from the old Republican playbook. Are they not reading the same news that we are reading?
1: Well, and we have discussed it before, how the bar was so incredibly low. What he did was mention LGBT at the convention, which was the first time apparently that's ever happened.
0: Right, he said the words. Right,
1: so that's it. That's all it took. And people just wet themselves. And one of the people in the op-ed article points out that, well, when Pat Buchanan spoke, it was filled with hate and invective, and Trump Trump wasn't Pat Buchanan. I thought, well... Mm -hmm. True, but that doesn't mean he's done anything good.
0: So here's the evidence of what wonderful things he's done. He has pledged to essentially eliminate HIV in 10 years. All right, I will give them a little bit of credit for this. There is a program that was announced this year Mm -hmm. that sort of looks superficially good. No one can seem to find any real problems with it, but it also lacks specificity. And we haven't really seen a lot of activity. There hasn't been enough budgeted for it.
1: No. Well, well, this is the man who just a couple months ago said that he, and he made it sound like he was going to do it personally, was going to cure HIV and childhood cancer next mm -hmm, year.
0: mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. But you know what? I'll give him that. I'll just give them that, whatever. <laughs> the other thing they cited was Trump's naming of Richard Grinnell to lead the global initiative to decriminalize homosexuality. And mm-hmm. What was the word that we found for him? That there's like a term, homonationalist. Oh, right. Yeah, he, he's a homonationalist. And as of a couple of months ago, we couldn't find any evidence of anything they'd actually done done since this thing had been put on the table, but oh well. And then they say that the tax cuts have helped LGBTQ families and put food on tables, and his hardline policy on foreign security issues has protected LGBTQ lives, and while they don't support everything he does, like they didn't support the trans-military ban, we will continue to press the administration to reconsider. I know that we are a diverse community. Mm-hmm. They are pushing it for me. I used to welcome this conversation, right. but now I just think they have Stockholm Syndrome, well, well, or they just really...
1: Because they believe, and, and the quote was, the arc of history for America's LGBTQ communities continues okay. to bend toward equality and inclusion.
0: Okay. And how can you... because With a major detour. Well,
1: and fundamentally, it had come down to the day of his swearing-in the gay and lesbian page disappeared from the White House and the State Department websites, never to be seen again.
0: Everything we talked about 10 minutes ago. Yeah. I mean, they are coming for us. And you know what? They're really coming for trans people. Yeah. And I'm sorry. And they're
1: getting away with it because the whole military trans ban, it happened.
0: I hate to say this about people in my own community, but Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I'm sorry. Ernst Grom comes to mind, the gay leader of the Nazi brown shirts. And I'm sorry, and I'm going to get black for that. But my feeling is, is what these people want is gay marriage and lower mm-hmm. taxes and they really don't care about what's happening at the border and they no. they're not paying attention. No. And I'm sorry to anybody I've offended with that, but get real. This man is harming this community. How about so, a happy story? Yeah, okay, thanks Give <laughs> me all <off>
1: this. <laughs> because who doesn't love cute animals?
0: That's the advan of the internet.
1: It is. And this this one is taking place at Zoo Berlin.
0: Oh, very well. Zoo, Berlin.
1: Thank you. And Skipper and Ping are two male emperor
0: penguins. Yeah, the biggest penguins of all. Yeah, yeah. They're like two feet tall.
1: And they've, they've been a couple for a while. I guess they transferred in from Hamburg as a couple. And they have tried to hatch rocks. Yes, they tried and to a fish. They fish. Tried, fish. tried to I, have that, a fish. must have been didn't so work out. Sad. They really
0: wanted a baby. Yeah. They, they wanted w- an egg.
1: They're doing all these nesting behaviors, but they had, of course, no egg of their own. So... They were given one.
0: And they immediately went to work being parents. Mm -hmm. They're 10 years old. Not sure how long they've been together. Penguins, they roll the egg onto Mm -hmm. their feet because they have nice big feet. And then they put this little belly fat roll Mm -hmm. on top of the egg. And then they turn it. And then they take turns. Mm -hmm. You know, they're very gender equal anyway in penguin world. So I believe that the happy little chick is due in about six weeks.
1: Although I think I read they're not even sure if the egg is fertilized. So it could be this is yet another dry run.
0: Well, we know that there'll be good deaths. I know. And love is love.
3: I know. Anyway, that is The Honest Tea. Mary's Medal, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. After her service as a surgeon in the Civil War, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker resumed her unconventional lifestyle, even wearing men's clothes. Yet she was the first woman in history to receive a Congressional Medal of Honor. In 1917, the U.S. Congress changed the criteria for the medal to include, quote, actual combat with an enemy, and Dr. Walker's medal was revoked. Walker refused to return the medal and wore it illegally every day until her death in 1919. For years, friends and family lobbied to have Walker's medal reinstated, and in 1977, President Jimmy Carter signed an order doing just that, citing Walker's, quote, distinguished gallantry and self-sacrifice, despite the apparent discrimination because of her sex. Today, Dr. Walker's medal is on display at the Pentagon. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Josh Behrman.
0: Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine out front and out loud since 1974. On KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ninety-nine point five Ridgecrest China Lake. 93.7 San Diego. Or streaming online at KPFK.org. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Abby Dees.
1: And I'm Wendell Jones.
0: Outcasting Overtime, produced in Austin, Texas on a Pacifica affiliate, is a monthly series of short pieces featuring personal stories and opinions of Outcasting's young LGBTQ and allied participants. Tonight, we'll hear three of these commentaries as Outcasters Alex, Andrew, and Amelie share their truth.
1: First up, Outcaster Amelie talks about how important it is for people to use the personal pronouns that conform to one's gender identity, especially when that person is transgender.
2: This is an open letter to anyone who has a trans person in their life, no matter how distant. That means all of you. To start, here's a thought experiment. I'm going to ask a relatively simple question. Take a moment to answer the question in your head, and think about your answer, alright? The question is, what is your gender? Here's my response to that. Male? Female? Doesn't matter. You're not. Feels pretty bad, doesn't it? Probably not too bad, though, considering I'm a stranger on the radio instead of a relative or loved one. But what if I were a relative or loved one? You tell me what gender you are, and I laugh it off and say, no, you're not. How does that feel? Getting validation from others is something most of us need to be happy. If you're straight or cisgender, you probably don't usually think about this in the context of gender, but you've almost certainly experienced invalidation in some other aspect of your life. Gender is a very important aspect of most people's identity. Imagine how bad it must feel to have somebody invalidate a. This is the core of the pronouns issue. Pronouns are words used to refer to and describe people and are inherently gendered, he, him, she, her. So when transgender people transition, their pronouns usually change. Someone you've known as he is now she, and that can be confusing. But it's important to respect these new pronouns as they allow trans and non-binary people to not feel invalidated. When somebody is misgendered, it's hurtful. This isn't just for trans or non-binary people. It would be just as disrespectful to address a cisgender male using female pronouns or vice versa. Most people wouldn't want to misgender a cis person because it would be considered disrespectful. So why not extend this basic human decency to trans people? This is not to say that everyone who has ever misgendered somebody lacks this basic human decency. Misgendering is often a mistake, and that's fine. It's okay to get things wrong, as long as you make an attempt to get it right and not demean or belittle others. Getting pronouns right can sometimes be difficult. When somebody you've known your whole life by a certain name instead of pronouns asks you to use different ones for them, it can be weird and difficult to do, especially when a person's body doesn't match what you might expect for their identified gender. When people make a mistake about pronouns, they often make a big scene in correcting themselves. As a trans person, I'm not a fan of this. Obviously, I can't speak for everyone, but literally all trans people that I have met dislike this kind of experience, and for good reason. It feels alienating and draws unnecessary attention to something that shouldn't even be seen as an issue. If you mess up somebody's pronouns, I would suggest quickly and calmly correcting yourself in the moment, then perhaps privately apologizing later. Mistakes happen and that's all right, just correct yourself. But there are some people who just can't be bothered to put in the effort to correct themselves. I've experiences with people and it's not pleasant. If someone isn't interested in using the tiny amount of mental energy to do something as simple as using correct pronouns, there's probably not much that can be said to convince them. But if this is you, please do consider how bad it feels to be invalidated by others and whether you want those around you to feel the same way. Finally, there are people who intentionally misgender trans people. For some of them, it's a political statement. For others, it is an attempt to antagonize that particular person. But at the end of the day, this is just deliberately causing distress to another person, Even if you do not personally agree with the concept of being transgender, that doesn't justify going out of your way to hurt others. When all is said and done, there's nothing that can be done to force someone to use desired pronouns, and honestly, I think it's for the best that everyone has the freedom to express themselves to others however they like. As a person who identifies in a way that many don't like, it would be hypocritical of me to say otherwise. So this is not an appeal to society to make it illegal to misgender anyone or something, but rather an appeal to those who simply don't understand why pronouns matter. It's just basic human decency to use the correct pronouns. Nobody is forcing anyone to be a decent human being, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be one.
0: Next outcaster, Andrew, talks about what it's like to use public bathrooms as a transgender person and why it's important to respect the right of trans people to choose which bathroom
4: is best for them. For most people, there's nothing particularly stressful about using public bathrooms. You go in, do your business, and get out. You've probably never questioned which bathroom you're supposed to use or whether it's safe for you to do so. But for me and for other transgender people, it's a lot more complicated than that. Before coming out, I spent most of my life using the women's bathroom. I never had any problems with this until I cut my hair short a couple of years before coming out. From that point on, an increasing number of strangers who saw me would read me as male. Not long after cutting my hair, I remember an incident when I walked into a public bathroom right behind a woman. She was sort of handing off the door to me, since I was walking in right behind her. But when she saw me, she turned around and said, This is the women's bathroom, clearly implying that I didn't belong there. I was taken aback, humiliated, and unsure of how to handle the situation. I just said, Excuse me, as if I didn't know what she was talking about and after a few moments of looking at me suspiciously, she continued into the bathroom. Going forward, it wasn't so common for people to directly confront me in the bathroom, but it was common for people to give me suspicious looks, and I was always afraid of being confronted again. There wasn't much I could do about the situation. I knew that I didn't belong in the women's bathroom, and clearly many of the strangers I encountered thought the same. But before I was out, using the men's bathroom was out of the question— especially if I was with or might be seen by anyone I knew. I would use gender-neutral bathrooms whenever there were any, but I often just ended up doing whatever I could to avoid using public bathrooms. Although, of course, that wasn't always possible. For trans people, particularly those who aren't fully out or can't reliably predict how strangers will perceive them, deciding what bathroom to use can be stressful and complicated. We mean well and don't want to face any confrontation in public bathrooms, so we usually just want to use whatever public bathroom we're least likely to attract attention in. However, that isn't always predictable or possible. I'm lucky enough that strangers almost always perceive me as male, so I've never had any problems using the men's bathroom. However, not every trans person has that privilege. Most trans people go through a point, sometimes lasting years or even forever, when different strangers will perceive them as different genders. This can make it almost impossible to guarantee that everyone around you thinks you're using the right public bathroom. Sometimes, there is no right bathroom for us. For example, using the bathroom was particularly uncomfortable at the research lab I was working at last summer. At that point, I was out to some people, and I might have used the men's bathroom in some situations, depending upon who I was with. However, I wasn't out to the people at my lab, so they considered me female. I was afraid to use the men's bathroom, in case someone from my lab saw me. I spent the whole day at the lab, so it was inevitable that I needed to use the bathrooms there regularly. So I had no choice but to use the women's bathroom. Not only did this make me uncomfortable, it also made other people uncomfortable. I remember incidents where I would be washing my hands, and I'd see someone open the bathroom door to walk in, see me, look up at the bathroom sign, look back at me, and turn around and walk away apparently too disturbed by or suspicious of my presence, to use the same bathroom as me. I just had to pee, and the women's bathroom felt like the only option in that situation. But incidents like this made it shameful and stressful. Even now that I use the men's bathroom without issue, I still can't quite shake the general anxiety I get about using public bathrooms, nor the habit of avoiding them. I know that I'm unlikely to face any confrontation in public bathrooms anymore, In addition to the fact that nearly all strangers perceive me as male, people using the men's bathroom tend to face a lot less scrutiny than people using the women's bathroom. This is because women tend to be more concerned about predatory men than men are about predatory women, with good reason. But even knowing all of that, using public bathrooms still makes me anxious. My stressful experience with public bathrooms isn't unique among trans people. The 2015 U.S. Transgender Survey of trans people across the United States found that, like me, 59% of trans people have avoided public bathrooms in the past year out of fear of confrontation. Keep in mind that this whole survey only asked about occurrences from a single year, not from the people's entire lifetimes. Trans people aren't just avoiding bathrooms out of paranoia. 24% recalled being told they were in the wrong bathroom. 12% had been attacked, harassed, or sexually assaulted in a bathroom and 9% had been denied access to the right bathroom. And avoiding bathrooms affects trans people's health. The survey found that 31% of trans people avoided eating or drinking in order to avoid needing to use the bathroom, and 8% of trans people reported having a kidney or urinary tract infection as a result of avoiding bathrooms. Again, all of this is just from the year preceding the survey. This survey was in 2015, but things haven't gotten better since then. In 2016, North Carolina passed a law requiring that trans people, when they were in many public buildings, use the bathrooms corresponding with the sex listed on their birth certificate. The law was quickly repealed after nationwide boycotts put massive economic pressure on North Carolina. But it pulled trans people and our bathroom rights further into the national political conversation, causing complaints, particularly on the right, about trans people being allowed to choose which bathrooms they use. These complaints usually involve concerns about allowing men in women's bathrooms. But keep in mind that the North Carolina bill would have forced me to use the women's bathroom, the very place where I have made a lot of women very uncomfortable in the past, and where most women who see me would agree that I don't belong. In addition, the fear of trans people being dangerous or predatory in bathrooms is completely unfounded. In fact, more Republican lawmakers have been arrested for sexual misconduct in public bathrooms than trans people have. That's three Republican lawmakers, and, according to multiple reports, zero trans people. The best policy towards trans people in public bathrooms is to respect our ability to judge which bathroom is safest and best for us and those around us. Whenever possible, we want to use the bathroom in which we're least likely to draw attention to ourselves, which is by definition also the one where we're least likely to make others uncomfortable. Forcing us to use any particular bathroom or trying to tell us which bathroom you think we belong in is counterproductive to that goal. We're the experts in our own situations and lives, and we know what option is best for us. Often, though, the options aren't great. Gender-segregated bathrooms force tough decisions and uncomfortable or even unsafe situations on many trans people, both binary and non-binary. For the sake of our safety, dignity, and state of mind, it's important to stop politicizing our bathroom choices. Many people who have never met a trans person might say that, as a trans male, I belong in the women's bathroom. But I can assure you that many of the women I've encountered in women's bathrooms would disagree.
1: Finally, Outcaster Alex addresses a common stereotype about bisexual people, that their identity is just a stepping stone to coming out as gay. Alex discusses feeling conflicted about the stereotype
5: and how his coming out experience aligned with it. Many believe that bisexuality isn't a real orientation, but rather a temporary self-identification people adopt before they come out as gay. Here's the thing. It so happens that this was the case for me when I first came out. I identify as gay now, but when I first came out to my friends, I identified as bisexual. I did this for two reasons. The first is that, on some level, I had felt attractions to girls before then. It was akin to the crushes that any little kid has before getting wind of what a romantic relationship actually entails. I don't give these crushes much weight now, but I do acknowledge that they were real. They were a part of my experience and development, and I don't want to shrug anything like that off. But my second reason aligns with that stereotype of bisexual people. I wasn't necessarily comfortable identifying as gay straight off the bat. The world of being LGBTQ was alien and scary. Beyond what I had seen on the internet, I had no idea what being gay would mean for my life. Identifying as bisexual was a stepping stone for my later identity as gay. So, I am that stereotype in some way. Eventually, I decided to come out as gay rather than bisexual. The why is important. Examining my sexuality, I see that I am attracted to women on some level, but I am certainly less attracted to women than I am to men. Many people would call me bisexual because of this, Regardless, I choose to identify as gay because I think that a romantic relationship for me with a woman would be unsuccessful and unfulfilling. There are two sides to how we feel attraction, the romantic side and the sexual side. Labels aren't meant to be used to categorize people like scientific names for animals and plants. Even though I might feel some sexual attraction towards women, I'm not interested in dating them. I don't experience romantic attraction towards women. So, because the relationships I'm interested in are with men, I identify as gay. In all, this stereotype of bisexual people makes me conflicted. On one hand, some people might think that my experience validates a largely negative stereotype. On the other hand, this experience is something that I know to be true for me and was definitely necessary to realize my identity. And I'm inclined to think that this is true. Not everyone who identifies as bisexual will have the same experience as me. Certainly not, because I don't identify that way anymore. Life is far more diverse than we realize, Though labels can instill a sense of community, they can also be trapping. Like all the ways that people identify, stereotypes come with being attached to a group. Not everyone in a specific group is the same. We all have a wide web of beliefs and interests that make us unique and different from other people, even the ones who are most similar to us. And who cares if people change how they identify? Just as our lives undergo all sorts of changes, our attractions can change over time. Because of the nature of our society, everyone is assumed to outwardly identify as straight and cisgender at birth. That doesn't mean that all of us identify that way now, right?
6: In the Life, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Many of the intellectual figures of the Harlem Renaissance were primarily attracted to members of the same sex. They were said to be in the life. It became fashionable for white partygoers from Manhattan to seek the exotic, unrestrained nightlife of Harlem, where social restrictions were often left at the door. They went to basement speakeasies or to cabarets like the Cotton Club. There, black entertainers rubbed elbows with homosexuals and transvestites, which was considered quite chic. Many partygoers were gay themselves, meeting in Harlem bars that catered to the black and white, the heterosexual and homosexual. Harlem was flourishing and had emerged as a center of black American music, literature, and art. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Anna Edwards.
1: Hello, I'm Michelangelo Signorelli, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974.
0: No mistakes.
6: I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself and regret. Just love yourself
0: and you're saying I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. And now a TTV Talk to Bosch from Bosch Bodie, examining the Gene Graham documentary This One's for the Ladies.
7: This is Vosh Bodie with TTV, Talk to Vosh. Today I am on my way to Park Avenue in New York City to meet the director of This Ones for the Ladies.
8: Hi, I'm Gene Graham, and I am the director of This Ones for the Ladies. This is actually the second full-length documentary that I've directed. The first one was called The Godfather of Disco about Mel Sharon and West End Records. And then I've, I kind of come to the whole filmmaking thing as an editor. And so I've edited uh, a number of movies that have made it into theaters. And my first feature that I edited was The Ski Trip, which was like the first black gay movie on Logo years ago. There was a little bit of a hiatus to actually try to make some money and get some health insurance and then, you know, kind of crack on again with the ladies. In your own words, what is This One's for the Ladies about? This One's for the Ladies is about uh, black male strippers and the women who love them. Uh, Mostly the women who love them. Somewhere along the way, it turns into a conversation about race and class and family and sisterhood. This film really is about overlapping communities and being responsible to one another. Definitely. The people that we met in Newark go back with each other for years. So the dancers and the MCs, they've known each other. They've gone to high school together. The women in the audience have been hanging out for Ever birthing kids and sending kids to college and all of that stuff, they've all kind of done that together over the years. So there's a community in the club and there's a community outside of the club, and the walls is kind of thin <laughs> between the two. How did you come upon the journey to make this film? There were a couple of things going on. So, you know, you had Michael Brown being shot, and I was really angry. And then also, you would see Magic Mike and be like, Well, there's no black people, uh, main guys in the lineup. And I was like, well, that's not true. There's plenty of guys across the country who are dancing and making women very happy. I fell in with this troupe in Newark, met up with Michelle. She was like, I got a show going on, come along. And so we went and that first day that we started shooting, we met Poundcake and Sea Pudding and they were talking about Blaze and sometimes they're gay and in New York and Philly and you know all that sort of stuff. That was the first Night and time that we ever met them. So I just kept following them, and this is the movie. This film is strangely LGBTQI friendly. Was that intentional? I was really surprised to see a lesbian Dom dancer in this space. So that's new. And the fact that women in the audience generally really enjoyed those performers. I think that speaks to kind of a fluidity of sexuality. I think the black community gets dinged a lot for being homophobic. And I think it's much more nuanced than that. Like, I'm not saying that that's not part of our community, but there's a lot of shades going on there. And and here it is represented in this environment, which is kind of surprising. So, you know, if if ladies aren't really particularly crazy about seeing a a dom dancer, they can go have a drink or go have a cigarette or something like that. And they'll come back when the dick comes back
7: and there is lots of it there is so much of it I can't even get to tell you and glistening
8: and all kinds of things Um, what was hard about making this film? it's like kind of now if you're asking me it's people have a perception of what this movie is and um, you know they say strippers oh it's I don't I don't want to see that movie it's whatever kind of making a judgment about this movie before they even see it and I kind of Knew that in the back of my head as I was making it that this could possibly be an issue, um, I, and I also kind of think that the the movie confronts some of that stuff. But I, I'm I'm a little surprised at you know the level of resistance. Maybe we just haven't hit the right people just yet. That's been a little bit surprising. D- 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 maybe not surprising. Disappointing that that people just some people just can't seem to get over this thing. You know I I don't know. So. And, you know, the money, of course, always the money. So the moment that that I said, yes, this is going to be a movie about strippers, the wallet closes right up. So no money for, for strippers. But we made it, and at the end of the day, when people see it, the audience really loves it. You think that you're going to see one thing, and by the end of the movie, you're really actually talking about, again, family, sisterhood, community, all these things that you weren't thinking that you were gonna get when you walked through the door, which is actually kind of the type of movies that I make. What was easy was the people, (laughs) crazy cast of people in the movie, super sweet, super nice, totally open. I mean, I don't know if I'm ever gonna get that chance again to just work with people who are just willing to open the doors, let us in, hit record, and boom, there's no filter. What's this film's rating? They're going out NC-17, which I have to give neon props for that. They stuck with the idea that you're going to come in here and you're going to see everything. So if you've ever thought about what's going to happen at a strip club, this is what's happening. So you're going to see everything. You know, what's the big deal? Because we see women naked all the time. What's the problem here when you switch the gaze? So I'm really happy that we're going to go out NC-17, even though I know there's a number of people who've told me, like, marketing-wise, don't do it. I mean, considering how much big black
7: dick you see on that screen, I'm surprised it's not an X. Well, there's no penetration. And that is a complete
8: sentence. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no sex, per se. You know what I'm saying? Like, So it's, it's just women getting together at the end of a week. It's somebody's going away party. It's somebody's birthday party. They're going to have some cocktails. And there's going to be some hot men's just kind of running around next to you and everything like that. And you're going to have a laugh. And it's always kind of a joyful setting. We've uh, shot in numerous places. The mood is always like cheerful and, and stuff like that. So there's nothing sinister about that. It's just kind of like, you know, sexy, nasty fun that everybody at some point in time is going to want to do. Or do. I hope people are doing it more often than not.
7: Well, actually, one of the people in your film, and I think it's in the trailer, she says, it's just penis. It's not going to hurt
8: you. (laughs) (laughs) It's just penis. Big black glistening penis. Say that one more time, please. Big black glistening penis.
7: Slower for me, please. (laughs) 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 What moment are you the most excited for people to see? I'm...
8: Usually taken when we go to the church with sea pudding and pound cake, and we see the the woman that loved Satan, one of those hot dancers, is now also like teaching her kids about doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, and feeding the homeless, and actually putting faith into works. You know what I mean? We always see these iconic images of black folks in a church. I'm not always sure that I actually see people taking that faith and doing something with it. And here, these women are feeding people, they're showing their kids that it's an important thing to, to give. So there's a lot of things to me that are happening in that sequence that says, a lot about the people that you're gonna see on the screen. What's
7: your favorite comment that someone said to you about this documentary?
8: We were in Sheffield in the UK and there's this woman, she was like, oh my God, I was really gonna leave. There was so much dick. There was so much, I was like, this is too much. It's too much, I've gotta go, I gotta go. And then right when it's like, oh, it's too much, you know, she's like, the movie switches. It kind of starts to ease into a different vibe. She was like, wow, I'm so glad that I stayed because people look at black folks and don't believe that we have families. So that was really great to see somebody converted. You premiered at South by Southwest recently. We actually won an award, which is crazy. We won uh, an award, a special recognition award for best cast. So totally unusual, but I think it's a testament to the people that are in the movie and their stories And the warmth and the reality that comes off the screen, having a laugh, but also landing in this other place that people weren't expecting and happy about that. Like, wow, who knew? This is great. You know, I understand why you guys got the best cast. They created a award at
7: South by Southwest because they couldn't just say, here's just for just good, big black dick all over the screen, which is really what they would have wanted to say. There's a lot of great music in this film. I mean, booty-shaking music.
8: Yeah, that was a big component. I listened to a lot of music to find those tracks, and I'm really grateful to all the artists who worked with me because the dancers are really dancing to, like, Migos and and Mary J. Blige, you know, like, music that just would have never been able to get. So, really, big shout-out. If you could summarize this film with a hashtag, what would it be? (laughs) Okay, so there's the official one, which is hashtag this one, ladies. And then the other one would probably be hashtag good dick. (laughs) Say that slowly. Hashtag good dick. So the title of the
7: film is This One's for the Ladies. Who is this film really for?
8: This One's for the Ladies is really for anybody who is up for a laugh and a good time. Well, it is a great film. I wish you all the success. I'm
7: so happy to have met you. This is Vosh Bodhi, and I've been speaking with Gene Graham about This Ones for the Ladies. To find out more information about the film, visit thisonesfortheladiesmovie.com. Remember, if you have a story to tell, TTV, talk to Vosh.
1: Well, we still have a couple of minutes.
0: Enough time for a last word. It happened again. Some friends asked my partner Tracy and me, is one of you like more the man in the relationship? This question doesn't upset me, but it's still weird. After all, I've always thought Tracy and I were pretty much on the same spot on the gender continuum. But people keep asking, is one of you the man? Here's what prompted it this time. I put pictures up on Facebook of Tracy and me at a she fundraiser. Tracy wore a print dress, and I wore black cigarette pants and a tailored blouse. We both wore makeup and heels, though if we're nitpicking, mine were just kitten heels. Now, there are any number of reasons why I wasn't wearing a dress, beyond the basic fact that my outfit totally rocked. Among those reasons, I'm deathly white, and legs, pantyhose, and suntan shade went out of style, if they ever were in style, in the 80s. Another reason is that I have a nasty scar on my shin from walking into a broken flower pot. And dresses give my rather cylindrical body a chintz-draped pink column look. Not included in this list is anything having to do with gender roles. But in fairness to my friends, they didn't ask just because of that one picture. They'd noticed that most of the time, when they see Tracy, she's in makeup and clothes straight from the dry cleaners. I'm usually in jeans. Maybe lipstick and sunblock. Maybe. So it's not so off the wall for them to wonder if there's something more to this than fashion. What's funny, though, is that they are as much flouters of traditional roles as we are, which is one of the things we love about them. In other words, they're a typical modern straight couple, two generations out from mandatory boy-girl conformity. What I get from this is a reminder of just how deeply worn the gender expectation grooves still are even if real life has much more room for variety. Like to me, more obvious questions about Tracy's and my personal style choices might be, Abby, are you a lazy, ADD-addled slug in the morning? Or, Abby, do you just not accept the fact that you're a grown-up now and should probably dress like one? I would have to answer yes to both those questions. But for the sake of argument, let's say that there is something to this question of Tracy's and my gender roles. After all, we're not any more immune to those expectations than my friends are. It's the model we all grew up with in some way or another about how couples are expected to interact. Is one of us more like a typical man or woman than the other? Honestly, I'd have to say yes. It looks like this. When it comes to heaving bags of fertilizer to the backyard and grumbling afterwards about how she shouldn't have done that to her back, Tracy's the man. When it comes to wiring a stereo or fixing the computer, I'm the man, and Tracy's the woman making endless suggestions over my shoulder that I try to ignore. When it comes to making charts of finances and household numbers, Tracy's the man, and I'm definitely the ditzy platinum blonde. But when it comes to picking up old socks and underpants from the floor and wondering if Tracy even notices, oh, I am so the woman. However, when it comes to being patient with a curling iron and mascara, Tracy's the total woman, and I'm the man, forever striving to bring my morning grooming ritual in under two minutes. And when it comes to emotional communication, Tracy's the monosyllabic man, and I'm the harumphing woman. But Tracy's still got those big, delicate, girly feelings. Does that answer the question? This is Abby Deese.
1: Okay, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our director of distribution and sparkle, Vash Bodhi.
0: Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org.
1: A little reminder you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org.
0: You can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast.
1: And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good
6: Good night. night.